You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. Oh No Lit Class, the podcast that is way less interested in Victor Hugo's literary career and way more interested in the fact that he gave his wife a live bat in an envelope. I'm Megan. I'm putting bats in envelopes. (laughs) Girls don't want boys. Girls want bats in envelopes. And I'm Jess. And Jess is here. (laughs) Jess is a fellow English grad masochist. And actually, you're an even bigger masochist than than me because... She read Fifty Shades of Grey? Oof. I don't know. No, I have not (laughs) read that crap. But I do still teach literature. There you go. To teenagers. Yeah. Which is just... It's its own thing. And so what have you come on the show to talk about today? I am here to talk about murder on the Orient Express. Murder? (laughs) Murder, you say? Yeah, well, I don't make those type of voices, so that's well, not... <laughs> That's why we're here. Exactly, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> so, yes, Murder on the Order Express by Agatha Christie, d- world-renowned mystery b- woman. I mean, she's actually known as the queen of mystery. She has that unofficial title. Who else is kind of around to take that one from her? I mean, I feel like Poe... Poe's, Poe's the, not Poe's the, the original, queen not the queen, but he creates it. <laughs> Poe could be the queen. I mean, he, he was he a cre- drama queen. He creates the genre. Yes. And people do not know that. We, it's kind of a sad thing that people don't know. I think we, we touched upon it briefly in our Poe episode. We talk about the murders in the room morgues. Yeah. But yeah, no, Ag- Agatha Christie, like, uh, apart from Sherlock Holmes, her her, her detective boy, Hercule Poirot? Poirot. Poirot. Monsieur Poirot. Yeah, that is uh, probably the world's most famous fictional detective. I would I think say that's easily. fair to fair to say. Yeah. And whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. There's Detective Clouseau. Yeah. 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 As that's portrayed by a Steve Martin. Oh. <laughs> All right. If you're going Panther, is that what it is? That yeah, what he's, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you're going to pick Panther, and you're not even picking like the actual like classic one. You you went with Steve, Steve Martin. Martin. Classic. When you think of Agatha Christie and, like, classic murder mystery stuff, you're probably not usually thinking required English class reading. I know I was never assigned Agatha Christie, were you? No. No. That was was terrific. No. Yeah. Okay. I, I picked to start the year with this book last year because kids are not reading. (laughs) <laughs> and, and I think that I think we bear I mean at least I barely read as a high school student and I'm like well what book can I get them to just go back to maybe just enjoy a book I, I love detective fiction it's the genre I read the most when I'm not reading for work and I'm like well let's just read Murder on the Orient Express and the movie was gonna come out so I'm like I can also bribe them with synergy <laughs> that hey we'll read it and then we can go see the movie or extra credit for the movie right but essentially I just use it and and we sort of break it down and try to figure it out as we read it and the kids like love it. 
the kids love this book and just it's get super into it. Awesome, because it's it's murder, which is already a good start. Yeah, and um, and yeah, because I mean that's one of the things we talk we've talked about on the show so many times. Mustaches, like, mustaches, yes. Well, because it's like, okay, kids, you ready to read the Scar of the Letter? No, nope, yeah, no, I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> And it's like, you know, yeah, when you're an adult and you go back to it and you're like, oh, this story is actually like crazy bonkers and hilarious. But yeah, when you're a kid, you're just like, this is dense and hard and bullshit and I don't want to. So that's, that's cool that you're picking something that they're interested in and is still going to teach them how to like think critically and analyze shit because they got to solve a mystery. Yeah, absolutely. No, to the point that parents, when they met with me, they said, I've never seen my kid not want to put down a book. It was obviously visible even at home because the kids were just, they would ask, can we read ahead? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, this is obviously something great. So I started with Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express last year. And now I'm switching it up so they don't ruin it for each other. Because ah. I know them. Oh, yeah. Sneaky bastards. That's how they do. Yeah. That is like really friggin' awesome. Yeah. But now I'm going to make you talk about the thing, a thing you told me before we started recording, which is the side benefit which is that you get to fuck with them. I do. And that's I, I, and I'm very open about that. They even know that I'm doing it. So when they think that they're on the right path or actually when they are on the especially when they're on the right path, I say something or point something that I know means nothing. But then the whole class just like flips and it's like, "Oh my god, we didn't even think about that. Let's yeah, no, it can't be that person anymore." Um, oh, or a lot of so times good. they think that if I smile that it means that they're onto something. So now I just smile at random points. <laughs> and they're like, oh, she's smiling. That means that we're onto something right now. And it's like, okay. You're throwing them fake tells. Pretty much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, impossible to read me, so. And this is, this is true. Having known you for, what, like four or five years? Five years, five years? Yeah. yeah. You, got, you got a solid deadpan. Um, <laughs> I, I was pretty <laughs> shook when I figured out trains could be sentient. <laughs> <laughs> the tr- yep, you, you spoiled it. You ruined it for everyone. The train is the murderer. It's oh, Thomas. It's always what the thirsty bastard. <laughs> always smiling. Now we know why he's smiling. Because of the murders. The murders. Um, That's sicko. <laughs> but yeah, when we go into the, the plot, we'll kind of talk more in depth about the ways in which you mind screw your children. Especially because of what you guys will hear with the, the plot and how it ends and all that fun stuff. And that it's ridiculous and unfair. But in a, in a good way. And I totally disagree. <laughs> I think it's brilliant. Oh, no, I didn't, I didn't say that wasn't brilliant. I said it's, it's unfair. But in a, we'll, get, we'll get there. Okay. We'll get there. Okay. Uh, but before we get to the train and the horrible murders that it did, um, we got to learn a bit more about Agatha Christie. RJ? So born Agatha Mary Clarissa Miller on the 15th of September, 1890, she died dame Agatha Mary Clarissa Christie on January 12th, 1976. Well, la da Unlike John Travolta and Disco, she ceased to be staying alive. Yeah? Yep. Anyway, Aggie was born into a wealthy upper-middle-class family in Torquay, Devonshire, pre-Brexit England. Devonshire. It's, it's definitely Devonshire and not Devonshire. I'm American. <laughs> yeah, you are. <laughs> Being British... And her name at birth being Agatha Mary Clarissa Miller. Let's take some guesses on her mom's name. Agatha Mary Clarissa Miller? How about her grandma? Agatha Mary Clarissa Miller? How about her dad? Agatha Mary (laughs) Clarissa Miller? So grandma was Mary, mom was Clara, Oh. and dad was Frederick Alva Miller. 
You almost made me think her mom and her grandma have the exact names as her, which we have encountered before. It is not outside the realm of possibility. So look at that. They've really branched you, out. You trapped me. That's entrapment. Daddy Aggie was an American stockbroker, and Mommy Aggie was a psychic. Specifically, one with the power of second sight. That's new. The ability <laughs> to see things happening far, far away. Apparently, the entire family leaned into this, and so Aggie grew up believing her mom was actually a psychic. Wait, so they, like, didn't tell her, like, this was just, like, a... No, the family was all in on this. Like, they believed she was a psychic. <laughs> Did she predict anything? Did she, like, help solve murders? <laughs> no. Aww. She wasn't, she wasn't the mentalist? Well, she just had images of things happening around the world. There's, you know, this was the 1800s and early 1900s. There's no way to double check this. <laughs> said, I see it happening over there in India. Yeah, I just gotta take her word for it. <laughs> So the family was well-to-do, and so they decided to homeschool Aggie. So she was constantly surrounded by and educated by people who believed in psychics, like Miss Cleo. <laughs> Aggie was known as a voracious reader. Some of her ba- favorite books included The Adventures of Her Baby, which sounds a bit Nazi to me. What the hell me. is Her Baby? Her baby, like oh H E R R. So like her, hair, 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 hair baby. Yeah. Yeah. No, no one said uh, uh, her Hitler. That's not how that. <laughs> Again, American, not German here. So this whole thing, this whole conversation sounded a bit Nazi. You know, to me. there was enough in Agatha Christie's actual life that you don't have. Like, there's a really huge thing in her life that I really want you to get to, and you're wasting time with like we're building her kids' books. Oh, and another favorite book of hers, Mrs. Mulwort's Magic Nuts. <laughs> My sources. sources. One of her favorite books is Mrs. Mulwort's Magic Nuts. What made the nuts It was enumerated as one of her favorite books. What made the nuts magical? (laughs) Yeah, her magic nuts. Now, now, this may come off as shocking, but a child raised by purported psychics reading books like Mrs. Mulwort's Magic Nuts (laughs) was not known to have a lot of human child friends. And when she was eventually sent off to school around the age of 11, after her father died, she hated school. She hated the people. She hated the structure. She hated the lack of psychics and magic nuts. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense if you've been homeschooled since the age of 11, and then you're just suddenly until the, yeah. the Until the age of 11. Well, yeah, to, to the age of 11. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, until the age of 11, and then you're just dropped into this, like completely different very structured environment you're gonna fucking hate it (laughs) so she quickly returned to the safety of home here now fast forwarding some years meg i don't want to dwaddle around in her uh... that's not a word but good try (laughs) yeah it is doddle yeah it's called dwaddle is not a thing (laughs) well it's waddle and diddle (laughs) i'm dwaddling i'm (laughs) moving past her childhood years no need to throttle. Eventually, though, she saved up enough gumption to will herself to go to finishing school, where she studied during her later teens. After completing finishing school, and I guess finished on becoming a proper young woman, she returned home and moved to Cairo, Egypt, with her mother for a short period of time. That's cool. They took in the warmth. They took in the history. And she literally scoured the desert for a husband to no avail. What do you mean, like, literally? Like, like she dug in the sand looking for, for hot dudes? More or less. <laughs> Apparently, once she finished school, her huge focus in life was to find a man. Wherever they went, they were looking for eligible bachelors for her. Didn't happen <laughs> out there in Egypt. So she returned to Britain, where she and her fellow finishing schoolmates put on a play titled The Blue, Bur- excuse me, the Blue Beard of Unhappiness. 
That is a fucking metal name for that a play. That is. The Bluebeard of Unhappiness. I've never heard of this in my life. Well, okay, but you know Bluebeard, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then, like, the Blue Bird of Unhappiness is something. So the Bluebeard of Unhappiness. I don't know what it is. Yeah. Unhappy. It does sound like a really good name for, like, a hardcore metal band. Yes. <laughs> so it was during this time, around the age of 20, when Aggie wrote her first short story, The House of Beauty, a story about madness and dreams. Between the ages of 21 and 23, the hunt for a man became real as shit. She entered into four <laughs> relationships. She even got engaged once. The thirst was real. Is she not allowed? I, I'm all for it. Sadly, none of the courtships panned out. Aggie took her frustrations out on paper and wrote her first novel, Snow Upon the Desert, which focused on her recent trip in time in Cairo. Now, here's the thing. It doesn't fucking snow in Cairo, or anywhere in Egypt for that matter. So I have no idea what this woman's going on about. I mean, was it, are you just assuming that this was a literal snow, or did you look did at you anything cocaine? about the book? Yeah, I mean, the cocaine <laughs> in Cairo. I don't, I don't know. I'm told you could judge a book by its cover, Meg. Well, what was on the cover? I didn't look at the cover. Oh, yo, then you didn't look at the cover, and you're full of shit. I know the words were there, at least. <laughs> While she was unsuccessful in getting a publisher for the novel, she did manage to land herself a man, Archibald Christie. Archie was born in India. He was an army officer in the Royal Flying Corps, and he was quickly smitten by Aggie and proposed to her in short order. Unlucky for the lovebirds, World War I broke out before the two could get married. During one of his breaks, the two were able to get hitched, although he spent the majority of the first four years of their marriage away, fighting those damn krauts. Aggie, for her part, joined the Voluntary Aid Detachment and performed 3,400 hours of unpaid labor as a nurse during World War I. That's hardcore. During this time, Aggie, needing a bit of a mental escape, really dug into books. Among her favorite authors were Wilkie Collins, author of Woman in White and Moonstone, and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, author of Robert Downey Jr. You and Jude You want to repeat Law. that since you called what? him an Arthur. <laughs> Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Yeah, then you said Arthur. Uh, uh, Arthur. <laughs> author. Of Robert Downey Jr. Judoa fanfic. You know what? All of that is true. <laughs> it is. All of these mysterious and fantastical tales led her to start writing about who would become her most famous creation. The Belgian detective with the egg-shaped head and the big twirly magnificent mustache. Hercules Parrot. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Hercules Parrot. <laughs> A.K.A. Hercule Perot. Poirot. Poirot. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hercules Parrot. Her first novel was published in 1920 when she was the tender age of 30. This was when Aggie managed to push something else into the world. Oh, no. A crotch fruit she named Rosalind <laughs> Margaret Hicks. Her first. Hey, she didn't She didn't name her Agatha or she... Marie or Melissa. Oh, Margaret's pretty close to Marie. I oh. Marge. Come off it. So this was her first and only crotch fruit. Once the war ended and Archie was home on the reg, the little family began to travel incessantly. They quite liked Africa, New Zealand, Australia, and Waikiki. In particular, while at Waikiki, they learned to prone surf, that's when you surf laying down, and then they learned to surf while standing up. Apparently, this made the duo some of the first honkies to learn how to do this. Keep this in mind. This becomes a very important part of her life. Wait, wait, wait. Agatha Christie's ability to surf, which A... That's awesome. You made it weird. But... Oh, because they, they, they blow this out of proportion. Okay, because the, th the, the metal image of Agatha Christie hanging 10 is fantastic. But you're saying this becomes a key point 
in her life. In her own autobiography. They okay. they were very proud of the fact the two of them could stand and surf. I'd be proud if I could fucking stand and surf. I don't see you going out and catching a wave. I could try. <laughs> so things did not go smoothly for long for the surfing duo, however. In 1926, Archie asked for a divorce as he had fallen in love with another woman, Nancy Neal. This is what Megan's been waiting for. It is what I've been waiting for. As you can imagine, this whole asking for a divorce thing because he wanted to fuck some other woman who went on tour with the troops years earlier Ooh, did so, not go over well. So, so the This two, might have been a long-term thing. So the two got into a big old fight. Archie left the house. He left the note saying where he would be and zoomed off. Not to be outdone, Aggie also left the house in a huff packing up her car with her clothes, and she, too, zoomed off down the road. That poor crotch fruit named Rosalind was left behind. <laughs> I'm told by others with crotch fruit, doing this kills the crotch fruit. If they're, like, jetting around uh, across the world, I'm sure they got, like, a nursemaid or, or someone. Like, I don't think they left the child alone in an empty house. Or they had the foresight to know the kid was going to be okay. So Aggie's car, clothes, and expired license, of all things, were found pretty quickly. She, on the other hand, was not. It really captured the public imagination. She just fucking vanished. There was a $100 reward out for information. Thousands of police officers, 15,000 volunteers, and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle all scoured the British landscape for her. Doyle went to a medium and provided her with one of Aggie's gloves in hopes the medium would work out. It did not work out. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was an idiot about stuff like that, but I'm going to save that for the Sherlock Holmes episode. <laughs> all in all, Aggie was missing for 10 days. She was found at the Swan Hydropathic Hotel, now known as the Old Swan Hotel. Little catch here. Yeah, and she was registered as Mrs. Teresa Neal, which was the same last name as her husband's lover. Mysterious. Doctors claimed Aggie was in a fugue state, kind of like Walter White. Ah, I see you stole her right off from under me. I was going to say, she did a breaking match in a Walter White. She fucked off, and when they found her, she's like, a fugue state. I don't know what, I just, I don't know what happened. So, <laughs> they hypothesized this might have been due to her mother's death earlier in the year. Maybe it was due to overwork. Maybe it was due to her husband's infidelity. Maybe it was due to all of it. So, the public turned against Aggie and seemingly believed it was all either a publicity stunt or for a way for her to try and frame her husband for murder did In her own autobiography, Aggie never mentions this at all. Can't imagine why. So eventually the two did divorce two years later. Two years after the divorce, Aggie took a trip through Istanbul and Baghdad on board the Orient Express. Wait, Istanbul? Istanbul. Not Constantinople? Nope. Istanbul <laughs> at the time. So during this trip, she met a gent named Max Malawan, and the two married within months of meeting. She was 40. He was 27. Hell yeah, girl. Rob that cradle. Aggie was thirsty for some nice young dick, and I don't blame her. <laughs> Agatha Cougar Christie. Malowan was an archaeologist, and Aggie was quite intrigued by his adventures. She tagged along quite often. The two remained happily married until Aggie's death. When World War II struck, Aggie again took to being a volunteer, this time at a pharmacy. This experience led her to learn about all sorts of drugs and poisons, knowledge she used in her later novel, such as The Pale Horse, which focused on a character dying from thallium poisoning, which actually helped doctors in real life solve a case of thallium poisoning based on her descriptions in her novel. That's badass. Yeah, they're like, wait, what's this guy dying of? And someone's like, wait, I read a book that covers this. <laughs> I read a book about this. In 1942, Aggie was investigated by MI5, because she named one of her characters Major Bletchy, which happened to be the name of a spy within MI5. So there were thoughts that she had some sort of unscrupulous connection to the organization. 
Aggie explained, however, I was stuck there in Bletchy. On oh, my... so it's a place? Yeah. I was uh, stuck there in Bletchy on my way by train from Oxford to London and took revenge by giving me the name of one of my least lovable characters. So that's just a weird coincidence. Yes. <laughs> At least that's what she says now. Mm-hmm. So when she was 80, her health began to deteriorate. Uh, textual analysis looked back at her career, and they claimed that signs of dementia or Alzheimer's actually began to affect her much earlier in her life, which may have helped lead to her later health problems. She died at the age of 85 to what's considered natural causes. And even though Max, her husband, died about two years after her, he was 74, he did manage to actually marry a second woman in between Aggie's death and his own. He works fast. Hell of a two years. (laughs) Well, he married... Aggie, like, within six months of them meeting. Yeah, okay, fair, so it's on Then she dies, and he's he's quick. (laughs) Now, focusing specifically on Hercule Pirot and the murder on the Orient Express, there are a few tidbits to know. One, Aggie was tired of Pirot and his ship by the middle of her career. This was akin to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle hating his boy Sherlock Holmes. In the 1930s, Christie wrote in her diary that she found Herc insufferable. And by the end of her career, she found him to be an egocentric creep. No, that's the whole one is so much better. Go for the whole one. A detestable, bombastic, tiresome, egocentric little creep. I'm confused. Of her character? Yeah. Okay. So that's like how, well, I guess more towards the middle of his career writing Sherlock Holmes, Conan Doyle hated Holmes. He was just like, this man is bullshit and I'm going to murder him. And then, you know, everybody freaked out and he's like, I'm going to walk that back. <laughs> However, unlike how Doyle killed off Holmes, Aggie thought of herself as an entertainer and believed she owed a duty to her adoring public, which meant she could not kill off, and should not kill off, Herc. So she lived with the burden of keeping Herc alive. Unlike Condor, she was smart enough to know not to kill him and provoke, like, the righteous fury of, of her fans. I'm warning you, Meg. A hot take's about to admit. Oh, no. If Christopher <laughs> Nolan had only balled up and killed off Batman... <laughs> I know, I know. You'll, that, that's, that's the hill you're going to die on. <laughs> I will. As for Murder on the Orient Express, which was written in 1932, if you're following closely, Aggie was already tired of Herc by then. She was inspired to write the novel based on her own journeys on the Orient Express, as well as the mystery of the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby, which featured a maid being named a suspect and interrogated to the point she committed suicide, even though she didn't do it. One final note on Aggie. There's a website, agathachristie.com, that is put on by her foundation. There are a couple of things that strike me on the site. First of all, her biography starts off this way. Writer, traveler, playwright, mother, wife, surfer. Hell yeah. They're going to stick to that. Why not? <laughs> there are multiple pictures of her surfing. Again, I don't understand why this is a problem for you. That Like, that's awesome. There's a lot of surfers in the world. Okay, are you one of them? Maybe. No, I know you're not. Yes. More <laughs> puzzling, though, is this line on the homepage of the website. Quote, the official home of the best-selling author of all time, outsold only by the Bible and Shakespeare. I mean, it's true. It's true. But the official home of the best-selling author of all time, I'm outsold, outsold only, only bad, by the Bible It's a bad and sentence. It is a very yeah. poorly constructed poorly sentence. It's she, true. You can't be the best-selling author and also outsold. This brings us to this week's Truth and with RJ, oh, brought to you by Aggie Christie. How long is this going to go? Aggie and her people want you to know that RJ is the most famous entertainer of all time, only out famous by God, Shakespeare, Aggie Christie, and other people with higher Q scores. As a listener, and hopefully a follower of RJ... Don't, that makes you sound like a cult leader. Maybe don't. Know that none of this would be possible without you. 
In fact, you should feel a sense of pride of knowing you listen to the most famous entertainer of all time, as long as you exclude everyone else more famous than me. This is my hell. Which has to be a pretty small list. Now, back to the website. Who approved this? this it's a real mystery a, of our time. It's such a weird thing to get hung up on. Good news, Meg. Yeah? I'm going to turn it over to Megan and Jess. Oh, thank God. The most talented people on this podcast. <laughs> only out-talented by me, RJ. <laughs> so I have a... Sorry, I, I know we shouldn't bring it back to what he just said, but I am, like, legitimately curious. <laughs> Go for it. Is your problem with the way that that sentence is structured? It's or, two separate sentences. Or... Or are you, do you not believe that this author, that her novels have, <laughs> have been outsold sh- only by the Bible and by Shakespeare plays? No, no, I, I, no I it's much that. more pedantic than that. <laughs> you can't be the best-selling author of all time. Okay, so it's a sentence. Well, <laughs> the problem is they have these two separate sentences. They give me a sentence that gives me a fact, the best-selling author of all time, period. Next sentence, outsold only by the Bible and Shakespeare. It's two separate sentences. They're very contradictory. Got it. They could have broken it down in many other ways. The best-selling mystery writer. The best-selling female writer. The best-selling writer since Shakespeare. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Hercule Poirot, yeah, how about that guy? Appearing in 33 novels and 54 short stories. Like all famous fictional detective geniuses, he's kind of weird. He's a, a tiny, fancy, fop, dandy of a man with a mustache that's basically bigger than he is. The students... Loved the mustache. How could you not over the mustache? And they would either point out when, like, the wind would, like, in a movie, like in the movie, they're like, "Do you see how it moved in the wind?" And I'm like, "Okay, guys, we're like not focusing on what we're supposed to be focusing on." It's it's hard not to get distracted by such a big, beautiful stash. Uh, although it is apparently never explicitly stated, it's widely accepted as basically canon that Perot has an obsessive compulsive disorder. Because he's just very exacting and particular to the point of obsession. And also makes him really good at noticing small clues and details, I guess. I mean, I never, I did not know that. But he is often described as organizing, like, moving something back into place. Yeah. It's, like, not his. Just t- touching things. Touching things. things, yeah. There was, what was it I was reading, that, like, he, he wants to only ever have, like, a balance of 444 shillings and 44 cents in his bank account at any given time. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> and where's the rest of it go? So, like, Monk. It's it's Monk. Monk stole from him. Uh-oh. Except not, not as good a mustache. Right. No mustache, really. Which is a downgrade. So... Well, we've covered very mysterious stories on the show. We've never done an out-and-out murder mystery novel. We we touched on Murders in the Rude Moor in our, our Poe-isode, but, like, that's a short story. Who killed the um, whale? What? Moby Dick. Well, we don't... Whirlpool killed the whale. That's a mystery. Yeah. We haven't solved that one. <laughs> I don't, and I never want to. So it's a lot of fun reading this book, but the thing is... It's kind of really hard to talk about. And that's not necessarily, it's not because of how it's written. Christie's prose is just, it's very lean, it's very straightforward, which is good. Because, like, when you're already trying to, to solve a mystery, that's hard enough. And if you have to do it wading through, like, some dense-ass, like, Lovecraft-esque prose, then that's awful. That is the opposite of fun. So yeah, uh, keeping proper notes on all the different characters and their lies and the goings-ons was actually kind of really fucking hard. So Jess, you're gonna you're gonna have to help me out a lot here, because uh, you you are the the bona fide 
Christie head? A Agathian? Uh, sure. Yeah. Something like that. So put your thinking caps on and let's get all aboard the choo choo train to Murder Town. Choo choo. There you go. You get to make a train noise. Yeah. <laughs> Going to Pound Town. No. Oh my God. Definitely not that. What? <laughs> what stops are there on this train? Not Pound Town. We'll see about that. Hey everybody, it's Megan and Profi. Gosh, this is gonna be the first episode since the ending of the uh, Brain Trust Network and on our, our new thing on Simplecast and everything. Uh, gosh, I hope it goes well. Per usual, this episode is brought to you by the cat who won't stop screaming and also all of our lovely patrons, which we're, we're getting close, man. We're getting up to that, that 50, which is when I guess I'm gonna have to call this quits so if you don't like hearing these then i guess that's that's your impetus basically buy my silence by getting us up to 50 patrons on patreon because until then i gotta give a, a thank you shout out a thank you cat scream out to chris at play comics melina alexander ariel at ariel teague tanner janet amy b not Alone Podcast at Not Alone Pod, Ben at KNSJM, Dirk Dammit at Killing You Guy, Aaron, Katie, Karen, Sarah C, Lucas, Sam, Florian, Kiki, Brandon, Wendy, Jared, Aries, Cheryl, Laniet, Lanyan, Pseudobred, Camilla, Sam Ariel, Morgan, Kendall, Caitlin, at Rose of Phantom, Barry, Mads, Amy W, Sarah R, Natalie, and E.S., terribly mysterious thank you guys just so much from the bottoms of our heart and my cat's tiny terrible lungs you are amazing this week's podcast pal is moxie of the podcast your brain on facts which is just this really awesome show where moxie fills your brain with a half hour of awesome like facts and trivia and just things you never knew about a whole bunch of different subjects like state nicknames body parts uh <laughs> tattoos and just all kinds of like if there's a, a thing that exists there's a your brain on facts episode that tells you a whole bunch of shit you never knew about it it's dope as hell you probably know marie antoinette never said let them eat cake but did you know that line was actually written about a Spanish princess 15 years before Marie was even born? This is your brain, and this is your brain on facts. From things you didn't know, to things you thought you knew, to the things you never knew you never knew. Your Brain on Facts is available on all podcast platforms or at yourbrainonfacts.com. So the novel opens with Poro getting ready to... Um, Pound. Yes, getting ready to pound a train. Just getting ready to fuck a train. Uh, that's going to Istanbul, which is Istanbul, not Constantinople, which was instead. No one, ne neither of you. No, no, God, no one appreciates my. They the might Animaniacs. Be no, the Animaniacs did it back in the nineties. Move on. It was. They it was might, so it funny. Was they might be giants, not the Animaniacs. It's a song by They Might the, Be the, Giants. The Animaniacs. And it did, wasn't yeah. in the Animaniacs. It was in Tiny Tunes. Get fucked. Either way, Burrow's hoping to just, like, chill and do some tourism and, like, not have to solve a murder for 15 minutes, but we all know that's not going to happen. And... Uh... 
If we're gonna get on Spotify, we gotta stop violating um, DRM or whatever. So, Perot, you know, he's getting on a train. One day he's gonna get on that fucking train. I don't know when. Uh, we briefly shift to the perspective of a young woman named Mary who sees Perot and describes him as a, a ridiculous looking little man with an egg shaped head. So, that's apparently just a, a thing that's always happening. He's just got a weird shaped dome. Yeah, that's um, always a description. Like, you know, when he's. Oh, that's officially how, that's appeared how you know. in the book when he's like, oh, there's a weird guy with an egg-shaped head. Yeah. <laughs> I like that, that that's his most distinctive uh, thing. Not the mustache. The yeah. weird egghead. Yeah. On the train, Perot sits in the dining car, and he watches with interest as Mary talks to the this colonel. Colonel Arbuthnet? I, I gotta see, like, the I'm names gonna, again. Yeah, I'm gonna fuck up some stuff, some of these names. <laughs> yeah, Arbuthnet. Yeah, that tight. sounds good. And they, they do this haha. They do ah. this whole weird like fake dialogue thing to make it seem like they're strangers meeting for the first time. Like, oh, oh, do we have a mutual friend? Oh, how interesting. It's my dick. Yep, it's his dick. Uh, and <laughs> they're really bad at it. Like, they keep just like being like, oh, don't worry, we're gonna leave all this behind soon enough, and let's not talk until it's over. Before I was just sitting there like. What? What is the point of this? <laughs> right. Why are they just sitting here, like, badly pretending to not know each other? Right. The train stops in a station. Pro gets off, and he chills at a hotel. And he meets a friend of his named... Book? Book. 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 B-O-U-C. Book runs the train line and will be on the Orient Express with him. Before he gets on that train, though, Pro is eating in the hotel. I think it's the hotel. Yeah. And he, he listens in on another conversation because that's the only way he can eat if he's just, like, listening, listening to, other to other people. <laughs> exactly. And so this time, it's a, a younger dude in his 30s talking to an older man in, like, his 60s or 70s. And the younger man is named Hector and the older man is named Ratchet. And somehow, I don't think we're so... Train, a there tra- is. There's a train. Coming. It's the Orient Express, everyone. <laughs> anyway, I gotta add here. Yeah, You're yeah. ragging on the guy for listening to the conversations around him. Yeah. It's the 1800s, man. It's not like he's going to like, put on his iPod shuffle. He's going to stare off into space. I'm going to say it's not even about that. Like, <laughs> I do this. Do we not all do this? Right. We so, all do this, we but all it's, do this. it's one thing that I did notice when I was reading this is every time he's, like, being observational or noticing things. He's eating? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he can only kind of use his his powers of, of observation if he's got, like, a cookie in his mouth. <laughs> Well, that's something slow down. You're focusing. You're enjoying the meal. You're looking around. Well, he should be paying close attention as he's walking around, talking. It's just something I noticed. I don't know. But anyway, yes, Ratchet. Kind of feel like we're not, you know, supposed to, supposed to trust him. Just just like a gut feeling. Just like a hunch. Because his name's Ratchet. In case that hunch wasn't enough, though, uh, Poro thinks that Ratchet looks mean because he's got deep-set, crafty eyes and the air of a wild animal, which seems a little, I don't know if I would go so far as to say racist, but sort of vaguely uncomfortable. There's deep-set, crafty eyes. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of moments of that. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of that where it gets to the point where it's not me being like, maybe I'm just reading into this a little. No. Like, it gets pretty <laughs> out now later. <laughs> It probably doesn't matter because I'm sure, you know, Poro's going to go get on the Orient Express and we're never going to see Ratchet again. He's just some guy. He's just some dude. All right. Unfortunately. You think Agatha's going to waste my time like that? (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, unfortunately, the train is just booked full up, which is pretty weird for this time of year, but more importantly, it means that Perot has to share a cabin with some dude. That's icky, and he doesn't like it. Would it have been icky if he was a woman? Well, he's just it's icky that he has to share his space with another human being. Mm. So it turns out that it's its the younger man from before that he saw talking with Ratchet, who is turns out to be an employee of Ratchet, and his name is Hector McQueen. Any relation to Steve? No. Mm. The next day, in the dining car, because, as we just said, Poro is only good at observing stuff if he's having a snack, he checks out the other passengers, of which there are 13, and he notes that they're all sort of different ages and classes and nationalities, and that seems weird to Perot. <laughs> what are all of these people of different races doing mingling on a train together? And uh, and they're like in first class. Yes, yeah. They are all in first class. Yeah. And he's just like, hmm. And for whatever reason, he, he thinks out loud. He says, he's like, hmm, maybe they are linked by death. Which is a weird thought to have out of the blue. <laughs> Well, we're all linked by death. We're all going to die. It's true. That's just a very... Our mortality Very foreshadowy uh, moment of Agatha Christie stopping the narrative. Be like, hey, hey, hey. All these people connected. In like in a, in a murdery death way. Just so you know. Just get ready for that. It's going to be a thing later. Just trust me on this one. So here are the, the folks. So we have the, the two people that were on the previous train. Mary Debenham and Colonel Art Art Not that Ratchet and his uh, employee Hector McQueen, an old lady who we're told many times is just super ugly, and is apparently the Russian princess uh, Drag Dragomirov Dragomirov yes yeah and her maid Hildegard. Of course. I hate this. And then there's Jack. He seems like an edgy kind of guy. He's always wearing his leather jacket, but down deep, you know, if he came across a puppy, he'd rescue it. I don't understand. There's a whole bunch of teen stereotypes. Oh, yeah. That's what it is. You got the breakfast club on the train? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, there's a trouble girl just too cool for everybody. She wears torn jeans. Black fingernails. The Russian princess Dragomirov. <laughs> just stereotype after stereotype. And there you got old Herc just sitting there going, what kind of teen movie am I in? <laughs> well, we got, we got a few more. We got a fashionable Hungarian couple, the Count and Countess Adreni? Adreni? You know how I avoided all of this? How in did class? you? Yeah, you had to teach this. How yeah. did you do this? I would stick to either the last name, like Schmidt, mm-hmm. Schmidt, instead of Hildegard. Hild- Hild- Hildegard. Hildegard. <laughs> and I would call the Count and the Countess. The Count and the Countess is a lot easier. Yeah. Uh, there is a quote unquote loud Italian man named uh, Mario. And, no, uh, but it's close. still pretty Italian. <laughs> Antonio Pascarelli. A quiet British man named Mr. Masterman. Ooh. A yellow-haired woman named Greta, who, like, that's the, we get told that she has yellow hair a lot. And also a sheep face. She's called a sheep-faced <laughs> yeah, woman. Like the entire time. A bunch of times. <laughs> and then Mr. Hardman? Hardman. Hardman. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Hardman. <laughs> and an elderly American woman named, you know, he's American too. And then an elderly American woman named Mrs. Hubbard, who won't shut up about her daughter. But are they as they seem? I mean, we'll find out, yeah, right? Yeah, that's, that's the point. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, that's that's the mystery. 
As the dining car clears out, though, Poirot is approached by Ratchet, and they introduce themselves to each other, and Ratchet asks to hire Poirot, saying that he's pretty sure someone's going to murder him. Poirot turns him down. Why? He doesn't smell right. You're really, really close, actually. His bulge points to the left. (laughs) (laughs) It's not symmetrical how he likes it. It's it's, Yeah, it's his face. He's like, I don't like your face. Yeah, I don't like the face. Yeah. And he says that to him. He's like, no, I like your face. face. Get your weird, gross face away from me. People who matter are beautiful. Come on. (laughs) Ugly people don't deserve my time. So that night, a bunch of small random things happen that are all going to be clues later on. You got... Raging clues? Yes. Throbbing clues? Throbbing clues. People coming out and going past Pro's room and all this stuff. Someone's... Mm -hmm crying out someone runs by and a thing i don't know if you have like a list or anything named <laughs> i know that there's somebody knocks he hears uh like a muffled scream yeah then at one oh, point oh daddy he, oh not quite <laughs> <laughs> then somebody bumps into his door yes which makes him open it and look out and see and sees Someone is that, in is it, it the red kimono? The red kimono. Yeah. I, think, I think that's when he sees the red kimono. Excuse you. <laughs> and then, is it just at the very end that he's like, "Oh, we're not moving." Yeah, yeah. At the, and, it, and he hears somebody checking in on the on Ratchet, who's in the room next yeah, to him. Yes, and he hears Ratchet like moving around a bunch. And he hears Ratchet say, "I'm okay. I don't need anything." Yeah. All of these things are happening, and Poro's just like, like, fuck this shit. Like, I am trying to sleep. And the next morning, uh, the train is still stuck. It, it's caught in a snowdrift. And also, Ratchet is dead. Right, how do they find out again? Boo, his friend Book, Buk, comes up to him and is like, hey, hey, man, can you do a bro a solid? <laughs> right, yeah. Somebody's dead. Yeah. <laughs> Turns out. And so, because the train is stuck and ain't going nowhere... That means it's time to solve a murder. I mean, if I have to. Yeah, it's like, well, if I'm not going anywhere, I may as well. And also, there's conveniently a doctor on board. Yes, that's true. I totally forgot to mention the doctor. The doctor. The doctor's there. (laughs) There is a doctor. I can't remember his name. No. I didn't write it down. I called that guy the doctor. There you go. (laughs) There's always a doctor. There is a doctor. There is always a doctor. Every kind of mode of transportation at any moment. Is there a doctor on the train? Yep. (laughs) Now, did she. Make it clear that it's a medical doctor, though. Yes, because yes. he has to. He's the, he's he, basically he, there to verify like stuff about the corpse. That, I can uh, verify stuff about corpses. <laughs> this guy's dead. <laughs> this guy sure is dead. <laughs> yeah. But he he's there to to confirm things and to back like when Puro's like hmm like it looks like he was killed at this time and the doctor's like yep so that's his his purpose. <laughs> If you're gonna solve the murder, it means you got to talk to a whole bunch of people and they're all gonna be liars. Yay. He starts by interrogating McQueen, who confirms that someone had indeed been sending Ratchet death threats. And he's got like a nice little pile of them. Like, would you like to see the death threats? Right. <laughs> I keep them on me. So then, Poro, I, I keep wanting to be Poro. like, Poro. Poro. I know, I just, I keep wanting to give it a flourish. He goes to check out the body and discovers weird stab wounds on him. So now, do you have any guesses about what makes the stab wounds weird? They came from an umbrella. That would be weird, and yeah. also just take a lot of effort. <laughs> yeah. But no, not in, not in this case. It seems they focused on his anus. <laughs> All yeah. the steps were based around the anus. How <laughs> peculiar! 
He really got in there. He really enjoyed that uh, slurp. <laughs> Just did a deep dive. <laughs> no. No. They're, they're weird in the sense that there are, well, for one thing, there's 12 of them. <laughs> one for each person in the car minus one, the guy who's dead. Just trampled <laughs> over his very good Fine. <laughs> also, Stop. some of the stabs were clearly done by someone who was right-handed and others left-handed. So either someone went the fuck to stab town on the guy and was just double-fisting knives like an ambidextrous angel of death, or baby Ratchet was stabbed by 12 people. Also, some were deep and some were... Yes. Some hit the bone and some didn't. Yeah, some some were like just some mad ass stabs and some were just like weak. Yeah, <laughs> just some weak ass stabs. Also, how can you tell if a stab is from a left handed person or a right handed person? That's a thing. Yeah. Wow. There's like a- angles and shit. Exactly. I hit stab this way and this way and this way and that way. Ow! Stop! Stop! <laughs> <laughs> so yes, and you know how there were thirteen people before in the dining car. And now Ratchet's not there. But as you, as you were telling me earlier, yeah, so you, you muddy the waters. Correct. So when I put the, I had images of all the characters. I added and I made sure that the doctor, I think an extra conductor. Yeah, there was a train conductor. Um, and I added Poro as well our, and Book. Yep. So I added a bunch of people so that the number wouldn't seem immediately obvious. Right. Throwing them kids off. Yeah. No one went for that extra staff, huh? <laughs> nope, they all they all got the one stab that was allotted to them. See, I'm, I'm told stab is like Pringles. It's not just one. <laughs> guys, guys, there's plenty to go around. <laughs> there's plenty of stabbings for everyone. So it seems kind of weird that Ratchet would just up and let himself get stabbed a whole bunch without putting up a fight, though, right? It's just kink. It... <laughs> <laughs> Your move. I mean, it might have been, but in this case, he was drugged. Poro examines his glass and sees that he had been drugged. Also, we discover a note. He does a thing in, like, a cool way with, like, burned paper. Yeah, he actually uses the curling irons for his mustache. (laughs) (laughs) Shit, how did I forget that? And holds the piece of paper over a fire. I don't know, some yeah. weird thing. And then it's like, oh, the name. I think like a name appears. It says the, the bit that, that is uh, he was able to, that's legible, is remember Daisy Armstrong. Oh, okay. And suddenly. He's pretty he much knows, like, yeah. I got it. Yeah, he's like, done. We're, done, we're done here. Yeah. <laughs> he knows that this guy is not named Ratchet, but Cassetti. And that he was involved in a case that would just ruin the lives of like 20 people when he allegedly kidnapped and murdered a small child named Daisy Armstrong, daughter of a Wall Street millionaire, and then used like money and, and favors and things to get acquitted on a technicality. So this is where Christie was inspired by the Lindbergh baby, because this was a whole thing of like this daughter of a rich family is kidnapped and held for ransom and they pay the ransom and she's killed anyway and they're not sure who did it and I mean it's pretty sure Cassetti did it but he he gets off yeah he got off he got off all right so this is where it gets kind of wild so Daisy's mom is uh pregnant and she's so upset by her daughter's death that she prematurely gives birth to the baby and then dies and this is so upsetting to Daisy's dad that he shoots himself and dies 
Also, there was an innocent nursemaid who had been initially suspected of the crime, and you had mentioned that, too, that that was the same thing in the Limburg case, and, yeah, she committed suicide. She hurls herself out a window. Oh, no. yeah. So, yeah, that's awful. <laughs> and so he questions everyone on the train, one by one. But they all have these, these airtight alibis of what they were doing at the murder. Oh, I was over here. I was with this person. I was with my maid, and she could confirm it because she was there, too. Like, they could all vouch for each other, which is very convenient. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and then we know the time of death was 1.15 a.m. because that's when Cassetti's uh, dented pocket watch stopped after being bro- broken. <laughs> uh, and then the doctor confirms it and all that stuff. So the clues that are laid out are just, like, a little too perfect. That there's, like, a, a handkerchief, there's a thing, there's, like, a something on cleaner. a window. Yeah. Uh, everything that's trying to point to a single person who was acting alone and maybe snuck onto the train, did the murder, and snuck off. And uh, they were probably small. They could have been, like, a, a manly woman or a womanish man. Right. Hard to say, really. It was a horse. It was a horse. <laughs> it was, he was stabbed 12 times by a horse See, he wasn't a right-handed. He was, was right-hooved. No, right-mawed. Yeah, I guess you really couldn't hold the knife in a hoof. You would have to. Yeah, mate, back. come on. I, get it together. Huh. I know. This, this book, clearly, I don't know anything about, about horse murder. Yeah, horse teeth are hooves. They hold the knives in their mouth. And then Poro gets to make a bunch of really great racist assumptions. Like, he suspects Antonio because, you know, all Italians are are crazy, like, knife-happy. Right. They use knives. Yeah. It's known. It's known that that Italians Italians like to stab. (laughs) Although my my favorite thing is, is Mary is kind of the one who throws him for a loop the most. And the one he kind of goes after because he can't quite read her. Um, and he's like, you know, she might be the brains of this this operation because of her cool, rational, Anglo-Saxon brain right. that would be needed to pull this off. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, what does that even mean? I might be missing some other wonderful moments of uh, uncomfortableness. It also doesn't really occur to him that, like, all of these, these different nationalities and, and people of, like, different sort of walks of life could like work together Together, yeah (laughs) impossible yeah no way (laughs) that's not a thing so he is is it what the the section is called like poro thinks or something yeah yeah it's just like he just thinks just real hard he puts he puts those those little gray cells to work which is like the catchphrase yes he's little gray cells and then he he does what what would end up sort of becoming the the signature like murder mystery trope. He puts everyone in a room and he makes them sit and listen to how he knows everything and how he figured it out. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which, you know what? Like he worked hard, goddammit, and he deserves an audience so they can hear just how smart and great he is. I'm, I'm skipping over a bunch of things. I'm sure we are. Because there's, there's just sure we are. so I, much. Well, like, I, I think, like, the red kimono appears. Oh, yeah, because they, they put the red kimono in his room. Yes, because he finds, first he finds in Mrs. Hubbard's luggage the knife. Right. Or a knife. And he's just like, hmm. And then, like, he goes to, he's like, search everyone's luggage. And he doesn't really find anything except then the kimono's in his own luggage. And he's like, someone's fucking with me. Yeah, pretty much. He's like, challenge accepted. Or something like that. Yeah. And then what, what, about, what about the bellboy? 
It's not oh, like a uniform. Yes, yeah, someone stole a bellboy's uniform, uniform, and I don't remember where it ends up. I think it ends up in somebody's room as well. Yeah, there's just a lot of there's a lot of little things, and it's yeah. great when you're reading it because yeah. it's like you'll be like ah what but like having to try to account for it all right now and is really the, hard. The handkerchief. <laughs> yes, the with the H with the H, H. in it. So then it's. Everyone uh, starts thinking, okay, so yeah. it's we got, we got Hubbard, we got Hildegard. Exactly. <laughs> but in the end, he figures out that, you know, who who on this train would have a motive for wanting to kill Cassetti? And the answer is literally everyone. everyone. <laughs> All of you. Even the train. Yep. <laughs> we learned that the Countess was Daisy Armstrong's aunt, her mom's sister, and... She's actually technically innocent because her husband, the Count, stabbed on her on her behalf. Right, right. (laughs) The Colonel, he served in the military with Daisy's dad. Mary was Daisy's governess and also fucking the dad. But uh, that's (laughs) That's neither here nor there. So the dad was stabbing her. (laughs) Gross. (laughs) The Russian princess, whose name I'm I'm not going to bother to try again, was actually the godmother of Daisy's mom. Antonio was the Armstrong's chauffeur. Let's see. Mr. Mr. Masterman was Daisy's dad's butler. Hildegard was a cook in the Armstrong household. Oh. So, like, we're getting really, like, tangential. <laughs> uh, McQueen, his dad was the district attorney who'd been assigned to the case, who, who was not shamed, but, like... Yeah, but, like, it ended his career. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was a career ender because it was just that bad. Mr. Hardman was in love with the falsely accused nurse who had hurled herself out a window. And then, oh, the train conductor, Pierre Michel, wild card. He uh, was the father of the nurse who hurled herself out the window. And then Greta, old sheep-faced Greta, she was one of Daisy's nursemaids who did not fling herself out of a window. (laughs) So, like, half these people were just sort of employed by the Armstrongs. So, like, you think they were just pissed that they lost their jobs because the whole family died? I mean, they do all say that they had a very close relationship with the family. Yeah, that they, and with that the they, little, that they yeah. felt very, like, invest, emotionally invested in the family and the little girl. I know. I go mean, with it. it. Just go with yeah, it, man. just go with it. Enjoy uh, the ride. <laughs> and then, yes, Mrs. Hubbard is actually, we learn, a famous American actress named Linda Arden and is... Daisy's grandmother. Right. And so she's kind of like the the grand orchestrator. Of the whole thing. Yeah, of yeah. just getting everybody together. So yeah, at the end of everything, Poro is like, okay, so there's two options here. First, the murderer was just one person. And he hopped on the train, and he killed Cassetti, and he hopped off. And Book is like, that, that, no, that's bullshit. That doesn't make sense. He's like, okay, option two. Literally everyone on the train except you, me, and the doctor was in on it. Worked together to murder Cassetti because he ruined all of their lives by murdering Daisy Armstrong. And it was all orchestrated by Linda Arden. And she goes, yeah, pretty much. And we all fucking stab him again. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Paul was like, but is this justice or is it revenge? He was a monster, but... Why do the 12 of you get to act as judge, jury, and executioner? How do we even define judge? You know what? Fuck this. I don't want to be involved. And everyone agrees and decides to go with option one. The, the end. end. Finn. 
And we, we learned that, you know, murder's okay if the guy was like a bastard and, and killed a little kid and ruined everyone's lives. Yeah. The train will never forget. <laughs> the it, train never forgets. It haunts them. Every time they close their eyes, they start drifting off. They hear it. Choo-choo. Murder. <laughs> I'm kind of okay with that ending. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm okay with that, too. I mean, like, I wouldn't take them to jail. <laughs> <laughs> right. Also, part, in part because there's 12 of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I, I think it also, at least, because I, I think about it on a, what do I teach of this? Oh, yeah, that's an interesting thing, because, yeah, then you're looking at the kids and you'd be like, well... Is murder cool? <laughs> right. I mean, so it's, it's then the least a conversation about what is justice. And right. then when the system fails, like, should we sort of then decide what justice is or what? I don't know, man. You got to make everything a teachable <laughs> moment. It's true. But hey, I bet they're actually like willing to engage in debate over that. Correct. Which yeah. kids never, like, you ask them to debate things in class and they either just sit there and like, I, don't know, I, don't know. I bet they got opinions on that, though. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. Absolutely. So when I said that the ending was unfair, what I meant was is that, you know, you're solving, you're supposed to be solving this mystery and trying to figure it out. And it's like, who's the killer? And the answer is everyone. See, but I think, <laughs> I think that's great. I do too, though. Like, I, I love it. I think that's great. Uh, it, it definitely made it easier for me to mess with the kids because... <laughs> So there's no you can't they, win. Yeah, they're, they're not. They're there's not. No they, way they, to there win. was that one student that did figure it out, and I crushed her soul. So then she was like, "Oh, I guess I, guess I was wrong." But I don't know. I think that's what she wrote. Thirty-three novels, and and to sort of follow the formula of mystery, like she does it every freaking time. Yeah, sometimes you got to change things up. Yeah. Sometimes a murderer is twelve murderers. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's great, but I do also feel like it, that it, it feels almost like a, like a gotcha. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. So to take a moment to talk about adaptations. So there have been several radio plays, BBC TV adaptations, including a, a universally despised TV movie in 2001 that uh, updated the story to the modern day and starred Alfred Molina as Detective Poirot and... There's a great picture. So I gotta show you the fucking like movie poster of this is like the goofiest looking thing. Oh my god! <laughs> I asked him. Yeah. So yeah. Google "Murder on the Orient Express 2001" and you'll just get like this really uncomfortable picture of Alfred Molina with a very terrible mustache. Like not even like yeah, a good. Yeah, that does not do the horror mustache justice. Just a at bad all. mustache. Yeah. There have been two feature film adaptations of Murder on the Orient Express. The first was made in 1974 and was directed by Sidney Lumet. I think it's Lumet. It could be Lumet. I don't know. I've never heard it I think it that said. you don't pronounce the T. Yeah, so I think yeah. it's Lumet. Because he's just American. He's an American dude. He's not like oh, French. So then, I, then it might be Lumet. Exactly. I have no clue. <laughs> right. I've never heard his name said aloud. He is, however, very famous for making like just a fuck ton of critically acclaimed movies, including 12 Angry Men. Which is kind of funny to think about. <laughs> Dog Day Afternoon, Serpico, Network, and The Wiz. Huh. The Wiz. I just want to throw that out there because, like, did either of you guys fucking know that 12 Angry Men and The Wiz were directed by the same dude? It makes sense when you think about it. <laughs> That's a good bit of trivia to throw out at parties, I think. 
Anyway, he directed Murder on the Orient Express, which starred a who's who of talent at the time, including Lauren Bacall, Vanessa Redgrave, Sean Connery, Ingrid Bergman, Michael York, and Albert Finney, who starred as Poirot. It follows the plot uh, pretty closely. It really only just changes a couple people's names, which, you know what, based on the time that I just had trying to say some of those names, <laughs> understandable. Can't, can't blame them. Uh, it was nominated for just a bazillion awards, uh, and it won many of them, and most notably was named alongside Witness for the Prosecution as the only two adaptations of her work that Agatha Christie herself liked. Oh. Yeah. That was it. That and that other thing. She was like, those are the only two good adaptations. But, hey, maybe that's just because she couldn't live to see the 2017 adaptation. Don't even. Do not even. <laughs> Directed by Kenneth Branagh. And we've uh, we talked about him before. I think it was on our Hamlet episode. As uh, the guy who insists on directing and also starring in every Shakespeare play ever. He's also the director of this movie and the star of this movie because he's Kenneth Branagh and that's what he does. So the 2017 version also features a particularly star-studded cast, including Daisy Ridley, Michelle Pfeiffer, Penelope Cruz, Willem Dafoe, uh, Leslie Odom Jr., Josh Gad, and the disgusting trash human Johnny Depp as Ratchet slash Cassetti, so, like, that's a good bit of casting there. (laughs) So, I have not seen the 1970s version. I did see the 2017 version, and Jess Jess is bursting right now. She's having such a hard time, and I'm gonna gonna let let you. It's gonna be amazing. I thought it was really nicely shot. There were a lot of really pretty shots of, like, the, the, the train and the vistas and shit, but just as someone who really was just going to see it, who didn't know a thing about a thing. My biggest problem with it was that, like, this was a really solid cast, and it kind of seems wasted, because really they're just there to stand and react to Kenneth Branagh and his wildly ostentatious mustache. Yeah. It's a hell of a stash. Yeah. (laughs) Google that stash. You won't be disappointed by it. But, on the plus side, you do get to watch some of Hollywood's best and brightest all take turns repeatedly stabbing Johnny Depp. So that's, that's fun. That's fun. Yeah. All right. This, this, is the, this was like the whole impetus of this whole episode has been leading up to this. Jess, what are your thoughts on this 2017 Kenneth Branagh uh, murder on the Orient Express? Words cannot properly <laughs> describe or express how much I hated this movie. I sat in the movie theater... And for the first three minutes, I'm like, oh my god, I have to sit through an hour and a half of this now. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I am here now. That's true. The, the movie doesn't start where the book starts. It starts... In Jerusalem. Yes. That's For right. some reason. Yeah. Uh, and, and they do the same thing that they did with the Sherlock Holmes movies. The, the thing about these detectives or these characters is that they're intelligent and that they can figure things out. So right. Hollywood has to add, like... Fighting scenes and chasing scenes. Well, you can't just have a dude sitting there thinking real hard. I mean, the 1974 <laughs> one didn't have that, and I mean, I, I'm I don't know, man. There's there's so many ways you could have done it. I just I hated him as Poirot. Well, that's Kenneth Branagh is just not the right guy for that role at, at all, all because he's not a weird looking little man who right. everybody's gonna like underestimate and shit. Should yeah. have been Tony Shalhoub. <laughs> How about the Count being, like, a ninja for some fucking reason? See, I don't even remember that. Dude, like, that's that's the other thing. Like, I watched it, and then I basically forgot it. Yeah. (laughs) 
I'm glad because no, because <laughs> like, this torments you clearly. Somebody bumps into him at the restaurant scene at the beginning of the movie, right? And he like karate chops like five assailants. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what is happening? We're not even in the train at the moment. Like, <laughs> I kind of remember this now. So there was that. Then there was the. Um, the chasing someone out of the train and they fall and oh, hang yeah. by their leg. There is that really pointless scene where, yeah, it's it's Josh Gad, I think, because he freaks out. And so, yeah, they chase him and then part of the train is, like, going to break. Yeah. Yeah, no, they're because they're like, man, we've been doing a lot of talking. We better get an action scene up in this shit or people are going to get bored. Pretty much. <laughs> then there was, like, the, rebe- the big reveal when he sits them down to yeah. tell them. Oh, but that had that really great shot where they're framed like the last like supper. Like the last supper? Dude, lame. <laughs> I don't and 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 why are they sitting outside? I don't know. In a cave. There's no it makes reason. no sense whatsoever. There's absolutely no and then reason. Someone tries shooting him. Do they try shooting him? Or yeah. is it that he says like, Oh, I'm because he's in in the movie he's so committed at first to, to justice that he says, you know, oh well if you want to get away with it, if you're gonna be murderers, you have to murder me, Kenneth. Again, all the fighting, uh, to me, it it breaks the rule. That's why I also hate the Sherlock Holmes movies with Robert Downey. That one doesn't bother me as much Mm. because Sherlock Holmes canonically, like, fights people. He says that he was a boxer. And there's a couple of occasions where he baritsus some dudes. Yeah. So, I mean, Never shirtless. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, we don't know that. But yeah, no, Holmes at least, uh, there's at least fucking evidence in the text yeah. that he knows how to punch a guy so I'm willing to give to give them a little a little more elbow room with stuff like that yeah Poirot's like the short little kind of chubby yeah. he, he ain't chasing he's, anybody yeah, down he's sort of like a dandy right I mean he's like very yeah. like he's incredibly like fancy and fastidious and yeah the man like, has two curling irons for, for his, his mustache. mustache yeah, he, that, yeah he's, he's not, not going running anywhere yeah. no. <laughs> however that what I what was great about the movie sucking so bad is that the kids loved the book so much. But when they saw the movie, they're like, "Oh my god, the book was so much better!" Like that was a, that was crap. We can't believe it. The book was so much better. So I was like, and then a chorus of angels. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. So I won at life. You did. You got a bunch of kids to be like, "This movie sucks. The book yeah. was better." Yeah. And really, that's all that matters. So yeah, actually, I guess uh, we've reached that uh, point. Hey, RJ? Yep. Murder on the Orient Express. Good or bad? I wouldn't recommend it. Because? Well, if you're going to murder someone, don't do it in such a confined space. It's going to be hard to get away with it. If you're going to murder somebody, you want to do it you know, out more in the open or maybe do it in their own home where you can get away. Doing it on a train, it kind of locks you in. Kind of like murdering someone on a plane. Again, I really want to say that's a good idea to do. There's way better ways to murder. And the novel, Murder on the Orient Express. Can you get away with calling something Orient anymore? Probably not, no, mm. but the, at, at the time. Couldn't happen on a white train, huh? Had to make it the Orient Express. That's what you expect of those. Murder on the Caucasian Express. <laughs> exactly. Hey, Megan. Yeah, Murdering. On the Orient Express or otherwise? Just in the Orient in general. I can't speak to it, personally. No. No, not familiar. How about murder on the Orient Express? A choo-choo-choo. The choo-choo-choo. Le choo-choo. Le death, le choo-choo de mort. I mean, it's it's a lot of fun. Like, we've just kind of been 
saying back and forth. It's a good read. It's not, it's a mystery story that's not too dense. There are clues there. You can figure it out, but it, you know, it's hard because it is kind of a gotcha that it's like, no one expects everyone. <laughs> but uh, no, it's a good book. It's a fun time. And obviously I got to endorse, you know, making kids read more. <laughs> hey, Jess. Yes? Murder on the Orient Express. The movie. <laughs> yeah. Fuck that. I mean, I love the book. I, I read it when I was little, and I've just, I've always loved detective fiction and mystery, and this is sort of what introduced me to that. Okay. So, especially this book, that's the first one I read by her, and I don't know, I love it. I, I will stand firmly by it. And that'll about do it for this episode. People just like it better that way. That'll about do it for this episode <laughs> of Hold Up the Glass. Uh, if you like the show, consider subscribing on iTunes where you can hear it all the time. You could also, while you're there, leave us a rating and a review. We did, it would just make us real happy. And uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Pod. You can like us on Facebook. You can join the Facebook group where Jess frequently makes appearances to, to post memes and such. It's true. Oh, yeah, we also have a Tumblr that I always forget because we never used to do things on it, but we do things on it now. It's a very active Tumblr. That's onolitclass.tumblr.com, as, as you would assume. If you, if you really like us, you can pledge to our Patreon, where you can get exclusive shirts, stickers, posters, and uh, bonus content, little bonus minisodes, and then also the ability to vote on the episodes that we do next. And that's at patreon.com slash onolitclass. Uh, thank you to Best Day, because we always forget to say thank you to Best Day, and now that he's been on the show, I just feel even worse about it, for the use of our theme song, which you can listen to, along with the rest of his music, at soundcloud.com slash best-day. Our next episode will be out on October 11th, which means it's time for Halloween-themed episodes. The spooky times. So the Bible... I hate you. Well, think about it. <laughs> no, you got a guy no, no we're not, we're not going to think about it because... It's the original zombie story. Until then, I'm Megan. I'm still hung up on the whole surfing oh, thing. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I'm Jess. We love you. Bye. Cowabunga! <laughs>